Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. The Vale Dance Festival returns to the stage July twenty ninth through August ninth. Conversations on Dance returns for a fifth year to bring audiences behind the curtain and closer to the festival artists they love. Our live podcast recordings have just been announced and will be running from July 30th through August 9th, totaling 10 events. Guests include Justin Peck, Sarah Mearns, Pam Tanowitz, Caroline Shaw, Lauren Lovett, and many others. I will be on maternity leave this summer. These live events will be hosted by Michael with special guest hosts throughout the festival. Tickets are on sale now and can be purchased at veildance.org slash conversations dash on dash dance, or click the link in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the content coming from the Veil Dance Festival. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Diana Bayer, founder and artistic director of New York Theatre Ballet. Diana has been at the helm of New York Theatre Ballet for over four decades, guiding the company to critical acclaim and providing a home for many nearly lost works of master choreographers like Anthony Tudor, Agnes DeMille, and Frederick Ashton. We talked to Diana about the serendipitous nature of her career, her training and its impact on her own teaching methods, and how preserving forgotten and infrequently performed works of genius choreographers became such an important part of New York Theatre Ballet's artistic identity. Diana, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're so happy that you could come onto the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's exciting. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and start from the beginning, like we do with all of our first time guests. Tell us how you first got um, started in dance and interested in dance. Well, it's a kind of a funny story. Um, I was quite heavy as a child and the pediatrician told my mother that I should do more exercise or I would become an obese adult. <laughs> so she took me to dancing and uh, yeah, that's how it began. And I just fell in love and have never, ever thought of doing anything else right. since I was three years old. 
three that young. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So what was some of your early training like then? Well, I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, and I studied with a wonderful teacher named Francis Kiernan. He was, he gave me a very good dance education. And from, I only took twice a week though there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I joined the Princeton Regional Ballet Company when that was kind of the fad of towns having regional ballet companies. And from there, I went to Juilliard. I didn't graduate because I was getting work right away. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. What was some of that work like that you were getting right away? Were you kind of freelancing? What was that looking like at that time? Yes, I was freelancing. Um, I was guesting with different companies. In those days, New York City Ballet had a touring group. And when they weren't at State Theater, uh, some of the dancers would tour and they called it New York York City Ballet Touring Company, I think was the name of it. It was in the 70s. And Mimi Paul did it. They're stars, Patricia Neary. And I was one of the dancers with that. So, Yeah. How how did you fall into such an illustrious group? Or let's go back a little bit to, to... Juilliard and when you were training as a teenager did you have an idea of what your career path would be like did you have goals was was Juilliard kind of like the big ticket you had your your eyes on what what were you hoping for out of your professional career um I just wanted to dance Mm. and Juilliard my parents thought I should go to college so I applied to several colleges that they wanted me to apply to. And mm-hmm. then I applied to Juilliard where they did not want me to apply. And I got into Juilliard and that's where I went. And mm-hmm. I, in those days, they don't have it anymore. They had an extension division. So for three months, I was there on the regular division doing the academics and the music courses and dance. Then when I was starting to get work, I stopped that. And I just went on their extension division, which gave me opportunity to study just dance there with Anthony mm. Tudor. Wow. Okay. This is, I mean, now I'm, now we're putting, I'm linking things together in my mind because obviously uh, your company has been such a, uh, a, a landmark place to, for keeping the legacy of Tudor, you know, it's yes, like that, that's one of the most fragile dance legacies, but we'll, we'll circle back to that. Okay. We want to talk about you for a little, <laughs> a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. so, so tell us then um, at what point, did it become clear to you that, you know, continuing your, your Juilliard education wasn't tenable and you were getting all this work? When, when did you kind of make that decision? And was, was, did you kind of do that? Sounds like you weren't super invested in the educational aspect. You wanted to just get out there. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the way I've always been, it's, it fell in my lap and I grabbed the opportunity. It isn't right. anything I particularly thought about. And this was my goal. My goal right. is to dance. Mm-hmm. However that happened, I grabbed onto it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's right. talk about um, working with Anthony Tudor a little bit. We would love to hear a little bit more about that. Tell us um, what some of your first impressions were like working with him and maybe even some good stories or anecdotes. We always love that. Well, I mean, Tudor was a genius. Um, yeah. You know, I was a kid out of Trenton, New Jersey, studying twice a week, and I was put into Tudor's class, and I was, you know, shaking in my boots. Mm-hmm. But I was feisty. Um, we got along very well. Uh, he cast me in Lilac Garden, 
right away. Wow. Uh, um, he was doing nice little feed for one of the concerts and it got canceled, but I was cast in that, you know, just right away. Mm-hmm. And I adored his classes. I adored the man. Um, mm-hmm. I adored his ballets. Uh, you know, we would go, he was so open with his students. We would go to parties and sit on the floor and he would tell stories. Um, and he was very intimidating and he, you know, mm-hmm. cut you to the core so that you were, he opened you up to kind of be able to take everything in. He kind of broke your ego down, Mm -hmm. I want to say. But with humor, I mean, he could be pretty nasty, Mm -hmm. but there is also humor behind it. And I always, I always felt, I don't know if everybody feels that, that there is always a reason behind the madness. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit, I want to break this down into two um, components of his artistic genius which is what, what what was his class like what was the method behind his class and then if you could tell us a little bit about um his coaching of his own works you know th- they're so specific i i only ever i only danced like that garden myself but I've, I've watched other ballets in rehearsal and i it's just so beautiful the details that mm-hmm. especially when you're young might pass you over and mm. um i just remember one time donald Mahler was staging lilac garden he was like you're wiping away tears at this point and i just i was only a teenager i didn't really like i just like oh it's a pretty port bra and then when you when you said say that it just elevates the movement to something really yeah. much more poignant mm-hmm. so i'm curious you know donald donald was very much a part of my company because mm-hmm. we're we were all from margaret krask after tudor I studied with Margaret Krask for years and Don, that's how I met Donald and he's yeah. always been a part of our organization. But anyway, um, oh gosh, uh, I don't know where to start. Tudor was very close with Margaret Krask. So mm-hmm. Tudor's classes, I felt, and again, people might not agree, but I felt they were always based on Giacchetti. Mm-hmm. Everything about them was based on Giacchetti. It's just that he, would choreograph in the class, you know, but it was based on those Giacchetti principles, gesture, ease of movement, not pyrotechnical. Mm -hmm. Um, And the combinations were so musical. Elizabeth Sawyer was the accompanist with all the Mm -hmm. classes and she was unbelievable. And Mm -hmm. um, have you read her book, by the way, Dance to the Music? No. No. Wonderful, wonderful book. Putting it on our list right now. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Wow. I want to make sure I got the title right. Where is the book? I think it's Dance to the Music. I have all my pianists always read it. Oh, that's great. As soon as they come in. Yeah. But anyway, um, so the classes were, he would, I remember he was in the midst of choreographing shadow play and he would try different combinations Hmm. on the class. and then he was evil too, an evil sense of humor. <laughs> Remember, sometimes he would make us bore for 16 counts and then pose in arabesque and promenade for 16 counts with no partner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we'd all be falling over. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. Promenade on point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I was, I was thinking that so too. I, was like, <laughs> um, I wonder how that just to jump ahead a, a, a hair, how has that influenced then maybe the way that you teach class or that you work in the studios? Because, 
you know, we always talk about how we're a product of, you know, what we've come from and what we've seen. And what, while we might say, oh, we like this aspect of what someone did, we didn't like this. So we want to change it for the future. How does um, working with him kind of influence the way you create a studio atmosphere? He wasn't my big influence in teaching. Margaret Krask is my major influence uh-huh. in teaching. Okay. With Tudor, it's but it came from Krask as well. I spend time even with the children, how you use your eyes. Oh, how you that. do a human gesture. You know, we so do important. exercises for the eyes. Mm-hmm. How you do a human gesture. Um, we don't let the technique go faster than anything else. So it's not about only pointing your feet and doing five pirouettes. It's yeah. way more. It's it's teaching an art form. It's not teaching athletics. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got from Tudor. You piqued right. my interest, the uh, exercises for the eyes. Can you give us an idea of what that might be? That sounds uh, one so is interesting. One that we do, um, you put your hand here and you look close to your hand and you In take your, your hand face. away. Yeah. So you're mm-hmm. looking close and you take it away and then look to the end of the, bal- the last row in the balcony. Mm-hmm. That's a different way of moving, using the eyes and a right. different mm-hmm. expression. So, you know, when you want to pull the audience in, and when you want the movement to go out to the audience, either, you know, you're pulling them into your world or you're kind of dancing for them, which is a different right, right, right. thing. Totally different. Um, yeah. And we do a lot of, um, in the beginning of the class for the children, they do corrective spine exercises that mm. we got from Margaret Krask. And then they always do a folk step or a character step. So mm-hmm. how do you use your eyes and your expression? Never smiling. But how do you use your expression mm-hmm. when you do a sailor's hornpipe? And then how does it change when you do a Viennese waltz? Uh-huh. You know, how do, how, does, how do you arrange your features when the music's a Viennese waltz as opposed to a bright kind of hornpipe? Right, so right, that's right. part of, the, part of the te- my teaching. Wow. Those things. Um, I love that. Yeah. That's, and so that's... then they go to the bar after that. That's when oh they go God, to I the bar. Oh, my God. I love that so much. That's amazing. I, it's so, I love hearing you talk about this. It's, it's, I feel like, I don't know, it's not something you hear. I don't know that our generation is as aware of it unless they've heard it from, uh, you know, generations past. But I think it used to be, maybe I'm romanticizing here, but I feel like I, you, you read quotes from Margot Fontaine, Suzanne Farrell, Alicia Alonso, all different, very different dancers, but talking about how to use your eyes or how they well, thought about supposed, that. Yeah, it's supposed to be an art form. Right. (laughs) It's so true. It's so easy to get caught up, especially now. I mean, I'm just thinking even like when you're saying, you know, five pirouettes, like when we're on social media, that's the kind of things that we're seeing. And that's what's, you know, quote unquote, interesting now, as opposed to how does someone use their face and their features? And of course, the audience always responds so much more to someone using their features and their eyes in the way you're describing instead of someone who's just doing incredible feats of technique with nothing happening in the face yeah well it's hard now to do tudor and ashton because it's Mm -hmm. not brought up from the beginning right Mm now it's not in the class the classes are you know because i see it when people come to audition right and we maybe will teach something from dark elegies and it's so foreign to 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 be a person and not be but tudor Tudor quote, it's an old quote, which I'm not going to get exactly right, but he wanted, um, 
he didn't want dancers trying to be people. He wanted people who happen to dance. Ah, love that. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, I'm so, super curious about how you arrived at this sort of method of teaching and how you built it from the ground up. But let's let's just go all the way back and just when you first got like the, the seed of an idea about New York theater ballet, what, how did that come to you? Especially you're, you're still dancing a lot at that point. And what made you say, I need to start this, an organization from scratch? I never thought that. Okay. <laughs> um, what happened was I came back from like Grand Ballet Canadian and some of the boys that were studying with Margaret Kress came back from jobs that they were doing in Europe. And we kind of all came back together. Mm. And the boys decided that they wanted to choreograph. And of course, they wanted um, to all have their own full program, but they were all going to use the same dancers that were from Krask. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was ridiculous. If you haven't done much, do you really want to do an hour and a half program of your own work? Yeah. So I said, why don't you each do one and we'll put it together and I'll do the paperwork and kind of, you know, we'll just see what happens. So we put it together and we got some bookings. Wow. And so I said, okay, I will stay in this position for three months and then we'll kind of figure it out and get a director. And the three months have turned into 44 years. Wow. <laughs> so again, it just kind of fell in my lap. It's nothing right. I ever wanted to do or thought of doing. I just wanted to be dancing. Right. The 10th annual Lake Tahoe Dance Festival will be taking place this summer from July 27th through the 29th at venues in Tahoe City in Truckee, California for in-person audiences. This summer, the Lake Tahoe Dance Festival includes works by George Balanchine, Eric Hawkins, Constantine Becker, and more. Festival artists include Friends of the Pod, Ashley Bowder, Adrian Danchine Waring, Lloyd Knight, and Stephen Hanna. The festival begins on Wednesday, July 27th at 5 p.m. with the 10th Anniversary Gala Opening Night Celebration, where audiences will enjoy a silent auction with food and wine. The festival's main stage performances continue on July 28th at 6 p.m. in Tahoe City and on July 29th at 6 p.m. on West End Beach, Truckee, California. Tickets on sale now at LakeTahoeDanceFestival.org or click the link in the description of this episode. So I wonder, like, after those three months you mentioned, what what was the next step then? Like, how did you start to make it a little more formal? How did you start to say, like, okay, let's create a mission. Let's create a plan. How did that kind of start to evolve after those three months? It took way longer than the three months. We were oh, just of kind of working and I was, you know, uh, doing the copy for the programs and getting this friend to give money and that friend to give money and just getting it off the ground. Remember, it was a different time. 1978 was a different time. Right. And then um, I figured out that we needed a costume designer. So Sylvia Nolan, one of our dancers, um, I asked, who knows how to sew? She said, well, my mother taught me. And oh. so she was our costume designer. She's now uh, the resident costume designer at the Metropolitan Opera. It's incredible. <laughs> but so she was cool. a dancer for, with us for years uh -huh. and, desi and designing and constructing the costumes. Um, I figured out we needed uh, to incorporate to get our nonprofit non status. So we did that. Got a lawyer who did it pro bono. Uh, and became a not-for-profit organization. 
know, tax exempt. And then from there, I figured out we needed an executive director and a board. So then we figured that out, got an executive director and a board. And, you know, it's just kind of, I made lots of mistakes <laughs> and learned from them and kept going. And mm. yeah, I mean, think- I didn't have a clue. Right. So so, it just kind of did what needed to be done and learned from the think, mistakes you made. Yeah. Right. You've already mentioned, yeah, it's like you, you feel like it's a product of its time. Like, do you think that could happen now that, that someone could survive in today's climate for the arts like that? If they're willing to put the work in. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of work. My, you know, I work average about 13 hours a day. Wow. So let's let's bring in some of the educational components of New York Theater Ballet. When did you decide that that was a big part of the organization's mission that um, you needed to have training for for children as well? Well, again, it didn't really happen that way. The way it happened was <laughs> Margaret Krask. There is a woman in the class, um, Livia Vanover, who has the Vanover Caravan. Miss Krask wanted me to teach her the adagios. I said, okay. So she was my first pupil. And then she brought Jonathan Hollander in, who has Battery battery Dance Company. He was my second pupil. And then all of a sudden, I had some pupils. So people would take Miss Kresk's class at 10, and then I would teach at 1. And I would kind of go over the things that she was teaching for the people that were more new to Giacchetti mm-hmm. and teach them the syllabus. and. All of a sudden, I was teaching, and all of a sudden, I had a school. And then um, Margaret Krask, when she was 90, the studio where she was teaching was going to close. And she met with me one day, and she said, don't you think 90 is a little too young to retire? And I said, <laughs> well, <laughs> said, Miss Krask, don't worry, I'll have, a, I'll have a studio for you. Wow. And then I had a real school. And at that that same time, Viola Farbers went to Angers and she had called me and said, do you know anybody who needs a studio? Because she had the studio at um, Madison Avenue Baptist Church. And I said, I need a studio and I need it right away. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden I had a studio for Miss Krask. I just love oh, how it? open you are to oh. things and then they it just like comes, which is so I feel like it's. As someone with anxiety and someone who overthinks things, <laughs> I feel like, you know, there's so, such a great lesson to be learned there that, you know, be open to anything and things will come. And so I also wonder while you're talking about this, you know, we've talked about um, a lot of the elements of your teaching that are very important. Did you do any work to create a syllabus for the school? And how have you like communicated that throughout um, the levels and the ranks that you want something specific to be taught at your school? Well, I follow the Giacchetti syllabus, but right. I don't do the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday classes like mm-hmm. that. Okay. I do what Margaret Krask did. Um, you look with your eyes and see what they need. And, right. um, I, you know, she was my greatest influence, mm-hmm. my mentor, uh, a- along with Tudor. But with Krask, I was with her for over 18 years. Tudor, mm-hmm. I was with him about five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, I use a lot of common sense teaching. Right. And, but one thing that we do here is we teach 
there are no classes that are given. The classes are taught and they're Mm -hmm. taught very much to the individual. I always teach with at least one assistant. So I keep Mm -hmm. the pace of the class going, but every child is different. They learn Mm -hmm. differently. Their bodies are different. So say a child is having trouble stretching their knees on top dues. Well, they'll go to the assistant and get one-on-one. Right. And then they come back into the class. So the class pace keeps going. But one child's having trouble with pirouettes. Um, You know, they're not kind of getting the feeling of pirouette. They're doing a spin. Mm -hmm. So they'll go to the assistant and they'll work on the rhythm of a pirouette, making sure the hip is right and the heels turned and say that'll take five, six minutes. Then they come back to the class. And my expectation is that if they have that private help, they are to go home and work on it, reflect on it and come back with it either better or worse. If it's worse, I know they haven't understood it and we will readdress it. Right. And if it's better, then let's move on to the next thing. Wow. So it's it's very much teaching. And, and who school. are the assistants in the class with you? Are they other teachers or are they company members? Um, company members and some of the more advanced children that are, you know, 16 years old and sure. kind of ready to go to an, another level that they'll it's assist. Nice, it's a nice experience right. for them, huh? Yeah. 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 Well, but- yeah, because they reflect they have to think and reflect on what they're saying. And then that helps them as a dancer as well. Cause I always feel I, the one thing about Crask that was so wonderful is that you always knew the why and the how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's such a, a great idea to bring in dancers as they're nearly fully formed. I, a lot of us, um, you know, Rebecca and I never taught a ballet class until we were at the end and and then you then you panic and you're just like oh my god am i i can't do this am i, am I capable but once if you have that kind of if you're exercising that muscle from a young age i think that's such yeah. a, a yeah you have to gift. train the eye if you don't have a good eye you have to train the eye if mm-hmm. you're teaching well and i think too when you're teaching you also have to you can't just feel it in your own body right and say like oh today i'm my right shoulder is being left behind in my turn or whatever. You have to explain it and explain the why, like you're saying. So it makes you think in a more analytical way. And I can totally see like Michael and I've had this conversation, like if we had taught throughout our careers, it could have changed our dancing a lot mm-hmm. because it just yeah. forces you to think differently. Yeah. Well, it's never about you. It's about the students, right? Of course. what they need. And um, yeah, I, I I think teaching is a good thing. Now, somebody with a very, very gifted body, you don't have to analyze. So a lot of times those people don't make the best teachers because right. they have done it naturally. Mm-hmm. They don't have yeah. to know the the how and the why. And that's, you know, children in the school with that physique. I don't go into that. Right. right. They, right, right. You know, you allow the talent to turn into the skill. And that's why sometimes the very best dancers aren't, don't make great teachers, you know, like right, exactly right. like you're saying, it doesn't, just because you're a good dancer doesn't mean you will absolutely be a good teacher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause those that's, people don't have to learn it. They just right. can do it. Yeah. Their body just, how dare it. they, how dare they, All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so let, let's talk about some of the repertoire at New York theater ballet, because it's, um, Again, I, I'm wondering if this was a conscious decision or you were just programming what you knew, which is a lot of these Tudor ballets, many of which may have been endangered. Um, but, you know, you've really established an identity 
as the company for the company as a safe haven for works that are these sort of um forgotten gems that you bring back and you polish mm-hmm. and make shine like new like it's oh we get a new tutor ballet you know uh that's that's such a beautiful thing so how did this um come about was it was it accidental like it seems like or serendipitous no, this wasn't okay, this accidental at all okay. <laughs> um, this you know i think there's a lot of different ways to dance and I think the kind of work that touches your heart where you're leaving the theater with something inside rather than looking at the gorgeous bodies and that kind and the technique and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. um, I felt that that had to live and it's what I personally loved about dancing. To me, that's really dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt that Tudor wasn't, and has never gotten his due. Yeah. Uh, and some of the some of the smaller Robbins ballets, some of the smaller Ashton ballets, DeMille is mm-hmm. forgotten. I felt it was important for New York Theater Ballet to do those and to bring them to the public and having like letting the public know that there's this way of doing ballet also. Mm-hmm. Right. That where it can touch the soul, where it is about gesture and it is about people's like the human condition. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, we do other things as well. We do Pantanowitz, we do um, Cunningham. Mm-hmm. But I feel that I search out new choreographers that are of our aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel that to get a real glimpse of Tudor. You have to do some of the less known works because yeah, then right. you see his body of work. Mm-hmm. How how are you uh, sort of uh, getting an idea? Do you have like a, a running list of things? Like, all right, these are ballets I haven't seen in a while, or this is something that I feel passionately about. How how do you identify the works that you want to revive, and then what's that process like? Um, ensuring that you're getting as close to you know the original text, if you will. Yeah. Now I go to library, I mm-hmm. research, um, I pick Norton Owen's brain. <laughs> I, um, uh, David Vaughn was a great influence. He was a mentor and we would talk about dance um, forever. And he would introduce me to choreographers that I didn't know anything about. And then I would just research and research and research and uh, to the best of our ability, we try to bring in people that have been close to the work. You know, with Tudor, uh, Sally Wilson coached mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And then when Sally passed, Donald came in. Um, for Robbins, we had Wendy Whalen come in, uh, Christine Redpath. Um, for Ashton, we did the first work that he's done that was ever recorded called Capriol Suite and we brought in a Benish notator from England who was there when he was restaging it for the Royal Ballet mm-hmm. um, cool. so you just uh, for DeMille we had Jemsey Delap to do all of Agnes's mm-hmm. staging mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that's such an incredible roster you have going there of yeah. artists coming I mean that's for as as a dancer, that's an embarrassment of riches to have 
those sources yeah. to pull from. Yeah. And for mm-hmm. Lamone, Lamone, we always have Sarah Stackhouse, who's an absolute brilliant stager. That's so cool. Yeah. She's... I wonder, has there been a particular restoration that you guys have that has been a little bit more challenging than others, where maybe there wasn't quite as much material to go off of, where maybe you had to fill in a little more blanks than you thought you might have to? Yeah. Um, we did Norton found a reel-to-reel tape of Tudor's Trio Combrio. And then there was a separate reel-to-reel sound tape. So it took about two years of working with our music director to get the sound, which we think is correct. And then there's a burned out section of the man's variation. There's about probably less than a minute that Mm -hmm. had burned out on the film. So Lance Westergaard, who worked with Tudor for many years, came in and filled that filled that little piece in. Wow! And yeah. but it took a good two years to get it to where we thought it was Tudor's intent. Now, you know, there's no way of actually knowing. Sure. But I just I think that's such a, a beautiful thing. Otherwise, you know, that would be it would be damned to be those two separate reels. And well, and, it was great. You know, the piece is um, to Glinka, and it's the same Glinka music that Balanchine used for Glinka Potatois. Ah. And it's so interesting to see how Tudor used the music and how Balanchine used the music. And I've always right. wanted to see them side by side, but the trust that they haven't let us do it. Oh. But it's it's very interesting to see. So if that had been lost, mm-hmm. you know, kind of see how they both worked because they were working right, right. at the same time right, right, and using the same music. And Well, that's a shame that you can't do them back to back because Balanchine's is basically extinct too. You know, <laughs> that's another gem that's almost gone, oh, yeah. you know? Um, but so l- let's go specifically um, into a discussion about your work um, when you established New York Theater Valley's LIFT program, which was designed to provide training to at-risk and underserved children at no cost. Um, That's an amazing endeavor that I don't think that many people were thinking about in 1989, you know? So for you to prioritize that was really special. And obviously it's gone on to be a really important program. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of LIFT. Well, again, it's nothing. I ever intended to do, you know, I, I always thought that if you decide to be in the arts, you have to give back something social. Right. Um, so I didn't know what I could do. It was kind of just in the back of my mind. And then Skylar Chapin, who is commissioner at the Department of Cultural Affairs, started a program where he took several arts organizations and he bussed about 30 to 35 children from specific shelters to the arts organization during the winter break. So you had the children for a full week and we became a part of that. And the children, um, we had a different shelter each year. I think it went on close to 10 years. He was doing that. So the children would come to us and we were at the old studio where there is a kitchen and we had a hot breakfast as soon as the kids arrived. It was a great breakfast. We had a lot of volunteers <laughs> cooking. Aww. Then they went into the ballet studio and they did beginner ballet um, and some folk dancing, you know, little things that the kids could manage, a good, really good taste yeah. of live music and dance. Then um, we did a reading skills and vocabulary lesson for an hour. 
with volunteer teachers and mm. one adult to every three children because I didn't know that the kids couldn't read or didn't know that a period ended a sentence. Mm-hmm. And then they had a hot lunch that was all home cooked. Then I set up a room with 3000 books and each child got to take home 20 books each day. So at the end they had 100 books to read and we had their age books, but we also had for their infant brother, sister, like these right. cute books and stuff for the parents, for the mothers. Um, so we did that for a week. And then on Saturday we brought the mothers in and the, the few kids that had fathers uh, and the kids did a demonstration. And they did a little class and then we always taught them a dance, usually picking the berries. It's a dance that teaches you how to use the eyes that you see the berry on the bush and you pick it and you have to have the right gesture and you put it in your basket and then you <laughs> kind of do a little gallop and you jump when you're excited. And it's a cute little dance to country Aww. gardens. So they show that. And um, then we had this huge Christmas dinner, you know, big turkey, a big ham, oh vegetables, God. cakes and pies. And um, then we usually we found out that the kids didn't have pajamas. So we set up a room with lots of pajamas and night shirts and things, and they got to take those home. And then I realized that there was a little flaw that after those six days, Monday through Saturday, they were poor. They couldn't come back. So, you know, that's right. it. You get, you get the taste of it. And then, but then it's what? Over. Yeah. So then we right. started offering scholarships um, to the school and then it became more than that for the very gifted kids. We, you know, sent them to private school, tutoring, everything, everything wow. for good learning, trips, going, taking to the opera, to the ballet, to the symphony, going to Shunley for dinner, you know, because that's always Shunley. a good place. <laughs> well, it's a good place because the kids know Chinese food, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, And so now it's fancy Chinese food Aww. where you um, kind of have a napkin and yeah, so it's yeah. been, it's been great. And we've had, we don't do the, the holiday thing, the winter mm-hmm. break thing anymore. We can't afford it. You know, we don't get that kind of funding. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the Department of Cultural Affairs moved on to other, other um, activities. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just think I, part, the component that I think is so um. I mean, of course, it's all important, you know, the education that you're giving them. But that the fact that your education in, includes attending the arts, I think, is so vital. What I mm. found about students of this generation that is so mind-boggling to me is like I, I've taught classes where you know I have a group full of 17, 18 year olds that have been, you know, I guess in my mind, it been in ballet for at least you know since they were ten or younger. And they don't know who Tchaikovsky is and they don't know, you know, they are like, they couldn't name an opera if you ask them to you know, Beethoven who, you know, it's like, if you don't have that building block, you're just kind of going through the motions. You're just, you know, plie and tendu, but you right. can't, you have no context for anything else. But what's wonderful about dance is that it encompasses other art forms. It's the only right. art form that encompasses others. So mm-hmm. if they don't know other art forms, if they can't read, you know, literature and look at paintings and design and music, you're never going to be a true dancing artist. You're right. just going to be a performer. 
Yeah. You know, and it, mm-hmm. it needs to be more than that to me, you yeah. know, to me it does. So. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of old fashioned, I guess. No, I wonder no. if there's a story from one of um, these children in this program that have gone on to have careers or, you know, that have a success story in particular that you're proud of. I'm proud of a lot of kids, not just the ones that have gone on to dance. Well, mm-hmm. Victor, Victor uh, Brew is a great story. You know, he's dancing at City Ballet, doing soloist roles already, and he's barely joined. Yeah. And just to see him there on stage, he got his first page bow uh, during this past season, which is oh. thrilling. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just to see him. I mean, it was tough going for a long mm-hmm. time and and that kid did it and he's yeah. going to have a he's going to have a big career i know from secondhand uh, information you know that, that i know that victor is a huge bunhead and very smart and i just think you have to connect that back to the education you gave him like i think he's the kind of person that has all that extra context and that gives you the imagination that you need as an artist and, yeah he's been all over and yeah. he's you know, we sent him to private school and um, wow. he has very good, very good friends that from here that they're still very close and mm-hmm. he has a great support system. And yeah, he's not a deer in headlights when he goes on stage. He knows how to deal with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. He <laughs> makes him stand out. But then I have other kids, too. I have uh, one girl. I can't say her name. Um, but she just passed the test for the Secret Service. Oh wow! What and she? Good- <laughs> no, she was um, in a group home. Mm. Wow! And came, you know, was with me from nine years old through high school. Got her computer so she could apply to college. Got a full ride to college, full ride to grad school. Now she's uh- going to be in the Secret Service. So I'm very, you know, you don't just have to be a dancer. Right. We talk about that a lot that, you know, if there's so much that um, these young dancers, when they're getting a dance education can go on to do, I mean, as we know, dancers are so smart and they're so dedicated and they have such a specific personality. Right. And so going through that training, people can go on to do many things and and then still be a supporter of the arts, a lover of the arts. Well, Demi, Demi Singleton, who is young Serena and King Richard, Mm -hmm. she's from our school. Wow. So our kids also go into theater. Um, Izzy Hanson Johnston was the first one they hired for Billy when she was nine years old for wow. Billy Elliot. So they, wow. yeah, they, the kids do okay. Wow, <laughs> Not really everybody. Well, so. yeah, we're a small school. We can't compete with the big ones, but it's pretty impressive. But you have something pretty, pretty amazing coming it's up. It's unique. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's a documentary film coming up centered on the Lilith program, and it's directed by Oscar-nominated director David Peterson. It's premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. There's not a lot more that you could do that would be more prestigious than that. So, um, tell us about how this film came about and, and what your involvement has been. Again, <laughs> okay. So Richard Termini photographs the company. He was walking mm-hmm. his dog in the park, and it just so happened that David Peterson was walking his dog at the same time, and they started to talk. And he, Richard found out that David's a documentary filmmaker, and David was looking for a project. And Richard said, call Diana Meyer. She has a good <laughs> program. 
So he called me and we met. And then all of a sudden, he filmed the kids for 11 years. And now the film is finally edited. And yeah, you see Victor from a little boy. Oh, Oh my God. I love I I didn't realize that it it had that much um, like that. I mean, over a decade of footage, that's going to be such a a beautiful thing to see on the, the big screen there. Yeah. And yeah. so that's premiering June 12th, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Do you know if there'll be a further, I'm sure there's going to be other ways that we can access it if we can't be there, right? Do you know anything about that? I don't, but I think I heard that it's going to stream at some point. At some point. But okay. yeah. We'll be on the lookout and we'll share We'll definitely let, we'll let our listeners know. Yeah, it's sold out right away. It's sold wow. out so fast. Wonderful. I think they might be adding. I right. heard that through the grapevine that they might add some screenings. Right. Well, I was just looking at it was a lot of screenings too. So, I mean, that's great that it, that it was yeah. sell out so quickly. Wonderful. So, yeah. It's it's good. I, if I do say so myself. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I got to see it and it's it David did a good job. It's very Wonderful. well done. Wonderful. It's not my story though. Just it's Stephen Stephen Alendez's story and Victor's. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So let's talk about um, you stepping down as um, artistic director and then making way for a new art incoming artistic director. Um, tell us a little bit about how that decision came about and and what you're looking forward to watching the um, company accomplish in the future. I have to say, in all honesty, it's not something I wanted to do. I mm-hmm. felt that it was something I should do. Mm-hmm. And I have to think of the company first. And I thought it was time and it needed new life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen grew up here. Um, he's had lots of other experiences away from here. Mm-hmm. So he will bring other things. And it seemed like the right decision. Right. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, you have to do what you think is the right thing for the company and that. I feel a hundred percent is the right thing for the company okay. and I'll continue with the school. I will still right. be artistic director of this school. Mm-hmm. Right. So in your 40 years at the helm of the company, what would you say um, you're most proud of? Gosh, I never thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that, that our listeners could see your face the way that yeah. the, the number of expressions that just went through your eyes. There. Yeah. <laughs> what am I most proud of? Um, I'm most proud of the repertory we've been able to keep alive mm-hmm. and that I've been able to give dancers who don't quite fit in and what people think of as ballet dancers today mm-hmm. to give them work and show their talent and show what they have to offer yeah. and how, um, and I'm certainly very proud of the lift program. Right. Um, people are dancing in companies that would have never had this opportunity. So I'm proud oh. of that. Um, I'm proud of that. We've really from the beginning been able to have live music because mm-hmm. uh, it's important. And to, give up and coming choreographers, emerging choreographers, dancers, a top costume designer, a platform mm-hmm. to show their work. I'm Pam Tanowitz did her first works with us. Gemma Bond did her first mm-hmm. work. Um, 
we brought Richard Alston to the United States for people to see his work. Um, oh gosh, what else? Uh, Matt Neenan did one of his first works for us. Oh, Nicolo Fonti mm, did yeah. kind of right out of college, did two works for us. Uh, yeah, we've given a lot of people a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder as um, companies across the country will start to go through this sort of transition phase. We know a lot of big ones are going through it right now yeah. and more sure to come. And, you know, our generation will start to step up and take on these leadership roles. What is one big piece of advice that you might give to the next generation of artistic directors? Um look and think out of the box you know people companies tend to have the same choreographers the same style the same body type um you know company after company for this many years and then all of a sudden it kind of changes and everybody's on that bandwagon right i think you might be too young but i remember how the royal danish you saw something different the royal ballet it was different Mm -hmm. the bolshoi it was different Mm-hmm. City Ballet was different. ABT was different. Now it's kind of homogenized. Is that yeah. the mm-hmm. right thing? Yeah, and I think I, if people can think out of the box and take risk, being a director is about taking risk and being able to fail and accept it. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps and go start again. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's my advice. Mm-hmm. Just don't advice. copy the trends, yeah. the fashion. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Diana. You have such a beautiful legacy and it was so great to hear about Oh, everything. thank you so much. This is and... fun. Thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.